So I think uh, everyone would agree that was really a wonderful, stimulating, um, challenging uh, morning with uh, both new information and um, honest discussions of uh, issues that we deal with on a regular basis but don't still have answers. And I was very, very happy to see the slight differences of opinion in terms of how to manage different situations that are um, so close, I think, representative of many of the challenges that we have. So this afternoon is going to be a continuation of that in a slightly different um, focus. And the first speaker you've already heard wonderful comments from, uh, Roy Gulick or Chip Gulick, who is um, the Rochelle Belfer Professor in Medicine, Chip Gulick, uh, Chief Division of Infectious Diseases at Wheel while Cornell Medical Center. Chip? All right, Jerry. No music. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Good afternoon, everybody. So how many people from Manhattan? Raise your hand. Brooklyn. Queens. Oh, not too many from Queens. Uh, Bronx. Staten Island. Yay. <laughs> uh, Long Island. New Jersey. Lots from New Jersey. Connecticut. Upstate. Texas. There she is. Denmark. Really? New Mexico. Just kidding. All right, let's go ahead. So the first thing I want to do is announce that our fall course, we're changing formats a little bit, that's me. That's Jeannie Marazzo, who's the chief of ID at the University of Alabama and a prevention expert. And we're redoing it as an HIV prevention, sexual health, and primary care course. So we're really, ah, Sue Blank just applauded. I, I appreciate that from the Department of Health. I saw you, Sue. Uh, so we're hoping that you will all attend and actually drag a friend from internal medicine as well to come. We're trying to make this a little bit more broad than it's been. It'll be good. All right, so we're going to talk about prep. We're going to do about 30 minutes on an update, and then I'm going to get the panel up, and we're going to do some illustrative cases. I have no disclosures. So as I said, we're going to update the latest data. You're going to learn about new candidate PrEP drugs, and then we're going to manage some complicated cases together. So let's start with the question, have you prescribed PrEP? Yes or no? What, SAG gets show tunes and I don't? Ah, okay. Okay, 85% of you have prescribed PrEP. So very experienced audience. And the next baseline question is, when you prescribe, how, which way do you most commonly prescribe PrEP? Is it TDF FTC once daily, the same on demand, 
Is it TAF FTC once daily, TAF FTC on demand, or some other way? trying to wake you up. Thank you, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry's dancing. Wow. Okay. 95% of you are uh, prescribing it the way the FDA asks us to, and uh, just a smattering of people doing other approaches. Good. That's good to see. All right. So we're all on the same page about PrEP. So why do we need PrEP? Don't have to convince you. Um, and Raj went over these statistics earlier in the morning. For many years, it was 40 to 50,000 new cases a year. Um, and we're talking about new cases of HIV. The top line there is the total cases, and now we're around 40,000. But as he mentioned to you this morning, right around this time, it's really plateaued out. And several more years, it looks like we're stalled in terms of the numbers of new cases. MSM continued to be the group most affected, although heterosexuals are on the map as well. So we need better preventative strategies for these groups in order to impact the number of new HIV cases. These are New York City specific data about who's getting diagnosed with HIV today. And I'd like to thank my colleagues from the New York City Department of Health. Raise your hand if you're from NYC DOH. So thank you for that. And if you're from New York State DOH, Charlie Gonzalez and pals. Okay, thanks for being here. So look at these groups, because this tells us who's getting infected in our city and needs better prevention. So men account for 80% of the new cases. Blacks and Latinos together accounting for about 75% or more of the new cases. Look at the age group. So it's 20 to 29 year olds. That's the biggest group followed by 30 to 39 year olds. So young adults, as we're aware. Um, Brooklyn, Bronx, Manhattan, and Queens, all about equally represented and Staten Island there. And then MSM, as you know, accounting for almost 60% of the new cases. And this is kind of striking poverty is a, an associated factor with new cases of HIV. So if we were gonna target the populations in New York, it would be young gay men of color, really throughout the area, many of whom would be living in poverty. And so these are the people that we need to find and to help them prevent getting HIV. So as we mentioned, PrEP was approved now almost five years ago in July of 2012 the FDA approved TDF-FTC, as you know, for PrEP, and importantly, in combination with safer sex practices to reduce the risk of sexually acquired HIV infections in adults at high risk. And as we were talking, Sharon reminded me earlier on that this has now been updated to include pediatrics, boys down to a weight of 35 kilograms. So it is now approved. So that was FDA approved. And that was on the basis of studies that you've heard about and that you know well. This is a graph of many of the PrEP studies, as you've seen here, each one shown with a different dot. And what we're looking at here is the effectiveness of PrEP, and it's graphed against the percentage of people who had detectable drug levels. And as you can see, the best studies we have, which are shown for you here, Proud and Hypergay, 
are more than 90% effective. So it was the earlier studies, the partners PrEP and the TDF um, and IPREX, these four studies that led to the FDA approval. And we, this is an interesting area of medicine where the subsequent studies after approval showed even better prevention rates than the studies that led to its approval. So how many times in medicine do we see clinical trials showing us one thing, and then when you translate it into the community, it's not as good. PrEP's an example of the opposite. It was even better when translated into the community. Okay, what's new? Well, here's something new that just happened in December. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, this is an independent group, did a recommendation based on PrEP. And so the population was people at high risk of HIV acquisition, and the formal recommendation is the U.S. PSTF recommends that clinicians offer PrEP with effective ART, and I think they mean ARV, antiretrovirals, uh, to persons who are at high risk of HIV acquisition. So they reviewed all the available data, and they gave it a grade A recommendation. Now, why is that important? It's because the federal rule says that anything that is a grade A or B, private insurance and Medicare must offer the services without a copay. So this is a big endorsement from an independent group that PrEP works. Do you have to take it every day? This is older data from the IPREX study that looked at a modeling experiment to try to see how many doses correlated with protection. And you may have seen these data before. I want to remind you, specifically this is in MSM. And they found if you took seven doses of PrEP with TDF-FTC a week, 99% risk reduction. If people took four doses a week, 97% risk reduction. And then it began to fall off. So you can see if you only took two doses a week, only 76%. So you may have heard in the field you need to take at least four doses a week for it to work. I want to emphasize that's for men. For women, it's a different story. And the issue is that in the female genital tract, you don't get the same kind of levels of tenofovir. So what this is showing you is either TAF in red or TDF formulation in blue. And then what are the concentrations of tenofovir and, importantly, the active compound tenofovir diphosphate? And you see with both formulations, there's actually a fall-off in both vaginal tissue and in cervicovaginal fluid. Rectal tissue, you do see good levels, although, interestingly, TAF uh, leads to a lower concentration of TDF-FTC in rectal tissue. But this pharmacokinetic data really brings up an issue that perhaps women really need to take PrEP on a daily basis. We don't know about this whole four-dose thing, and we certainly don't know about on-demand PrEP for women. So today, in 2019, we need to recommend women take it once a day. And we have incomplete information. Now, PrEP is really taking off. So this is from something called AIDSview.org. You can see the number of PrEP cases in 2012 to 2014 to 2016, and we're looking at rates of people taking PrEP. And as it says here, there were 77,000 PrEP users in the United States, a 73% increase year over year since 2012, but it doesn't stop there. So in 2017, there were 120,000 PrEP users, and just, I 
estimated that we have double that, more than double, 270,000 people using PrEP across the United States. New York is a leader among states in terms of PrEP. But who is getting PrEP and who needs PrEP are two different things. So what's shown for you here is the race and ethnicity breakdown of the US population. So roughly two thirds are white, and then 13% African-Americans and 18% Latinos, so roughly 30%. Okay, what's shown for you in the middle are new HIV infections. And you can see overrepresented compared to the general population are African-Americans accounting for 44% of new infections and Latinos 24%. And then over on the right is who is getting PrEP by race and ethnicity. And you'll see whites, 73% of PrEP users are white. We are not reaching the populations most in need of PrEP, young, black, and Latino MSM. The CDC has actually done a formal assessment of how many people would benefit from PrEP based on risk in our country. And the bottom line is 1.1 million Americans would benefit because they are at high risk, either because they are gay or bisexual men, heterosexually active adults in certain areas of the country where HIV is in the community, or people who inject drugs. So the bottom line is 1.1. So I showed you a couple slides ago, 270,000 people are taking it, but an estimated 1.1 would benefit from it. So we are probably even in New York City, under-prescribing PrEP for people that need it. Worldwide, PrEP is also taking off. You know the U.S. was the first country to approve it and use it, but now it's really expanded. So what's shown for you here is both branded and generic TDF-FTC around the world, and you can see every continent now is represented with PrEP. So here in North America, several countries um, in South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, the EU has approved it, and even countries like India, Thailand um, have now approved PrEP. PrEP has become a big part of the end of AIDS initiative, and I think everyone in the room knows our governor was the first person to stand up and say, we're gonna end AIDS in my jurisdiction. And he did that in October 2014, so uh, almost five years ago. And he had a three-part plan. One is diagnose people and link them to care. Two was link, retain, and treat them with ART if they're HIV infected to achieve virologic suppression. And the third part was provide PrEP for HIV negative people. So really forward thinking. And importantly, he put resources behind this to make this really happen. So we are, are really in front of the curve across the country. You will also be aware that our president stood up and said the same thing just recently. All right, I was trying to avoid that hissing that I just heard. <laughs> There's no hissing about the fact that he stood up and said that we're going to end AIDS in, or HIV in the United States by 2030. And he came up with a similar four-point plan. Diagnose people, treat them, and achieve virologic suppression, and then importantly, protect people at risk with prevention strategies, including PrEP. So he actually mentioned the word PrEP. 
and then respond to outbreaks as uh, Raj talked about earlier. Just to remind you that they identified those areas of the country, 48 different counties, and New York City accounts for four of them. So the boroughs of Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx are in that 48 counties across the country that are being targeted for prevention efforts. So it's caught on. There's ad campaigns for this. Is prep right for me? There's a prep rally at GMHC. Be prep aired. And New York City has released a lot of this. Hopefully you've seen these. Uh, big initiative in New York City to offer PrEP to women at risk as well. And so it's out there. So these are the latest CDC guidelines as to who to offer PrEP to across the country and how to do it. And uh, these were last updated in 2017. PrEP recommended by the CDC for, uh, for people at substantial risk of HIV infection, either MSM, heterosexual men and women, or people who inject drugs uh, with the following groups. So the two groups at risk for sexual acquisition should use PrEP if they have an HIV-positive sexual partner, if they've had recurrent bacterial STIs, so GC chlamydia syphilis, a high number of sex partners, inconsistent or no condom use, or engage in commercial sex work. And then there's one ca caveat for the heterosexual group, and that is that they live in a high HIV prevalence area or network. These are all candidates for PrEP. For persons who inject drugs, uh, if they have an HIV positive injecting partner or if they share equipment, they should be uh, offered PrEP for the same reason. Uh, you want to document the negative HIV test. You want to be very careful to rule out acute infection when you start PrEP both from signs and symptoms, and many people would check an HIV RNA test if the person is at risk from, uh, from taking a careful history, normal renal function, and then you want to make sure that you know their hepatitis B status because both components, as you know, of PrEP are active against hepatitis B. And then the CDC says prescribe daily oral doses of TDF-FTC, give a three-month supply, and then see everybody every three months. And then they go on to say that the follow-up visits, you want to do an HIV test, adherence counseling, behavioral risk reduction support, assess for side effects, uh, do an STI, sexually transmitted infection symptom assessment, and then continue to both check renal function and assess for STIs. Um, and that includes MSM. For women, do a pregnancy test. And for people who inject drugs, try to direct them towards sources of clean needles and syringes and drug treatment services. So these are the official guidelines from the CDC. Now, WHO did an independent assessment of the PrEP data, which I think is interesting to look at. Um, remember, their guidelines are for low- and middle-income countries. And they said their assessment of the efficacy of PrEP based on what we know is that it's effective across groups and works for both men and women, that adherence in the studies was heterogeneous, as we know, that side effects in their assessment were no more common than placebo, uh, although they do know sub, note subclinical renal and bone issues, which we're all aware of. 
Drug resistance was low risk. Remember at the beginning, people were very concerned about using these same drugs, but we have not seen resistance in the community. Um, risk compensation, according to studies, did not increase, but then as we've seen, there is some risk compensation going on in the community now with decreased condom use. And they note that this could be a cost-effective or actually cost-saving strategy for the world, although logistics are uh, daunting, let's say. And then I saw this was um, helpful meta-analysis of PrEP safety. They looked at 13 randomized trials of PrEP versus placebo or no treatment at all, and including more than 15,000 people who took either PrEP or the matching arm. And what you see here is grade three or four, so that's serious or life-threatening side effects. No difference between PrEP and the control arms. Serious adverse events in general, no difference. Bone fractures, no difference. And serious or life-threatening creatinine increases, no difference between the two arms. When you looked at lower grade renal, so all grades of creatinine increase, you do see a statistically significant increase in the PrEP arm compared with the control arms, and you can see the p-value there. So you do see low-grade increased creatinine. It's an uncommon event, but something that we need to be aware of. What about breakthrough infections? There's been three well-publicized cases of people who have broken through PrEP and were thought to be highly adherent. Two of them, one from New England Journal and one uh, from reported in Jades, were two men who acquired MDR-HIV infection. So that's not surprising. We know if you're taking TDF-FTC and the virus that you're challenged with is resistant to both those drugs, of course the PrEP isn't gonna work. More confusing was the third case of a 50-year-old Dutch man who had excellent adherence and acquired HIV with wild-type virus, even though he was thought to be taking his PrEP quite uh, regularly. Not known why this man acquired it, although he was very sexually active with up to two to five partners a day. And so the thinking was, could this be chronic rectal inflammation with or without trauma that led to this unusual event. These cases are rare, but, uh, but we should be aware of them. And then what's going on in the city? Again, thanks to my colleagues at the Department of Health who gave me these updated slides. This is looking at PrEP awareness and PrEP use. And on this slide are MSM from 2012 when the, when the FDA approved it to 2017. And you can see that currently in New York City, um, over 95% of MSM are aware of PrEP what it is, um, and that it's available. You can see about a third of MSM in New York City are taking PrEP right now, according to the city estimates. When you look at women, it's not the same story. And so uh, what we're looking at here are black and Latina women, so perhaps at the greatest risk. Um, and you can see overall in terms of PrEP awareness, it's, uh, it's only about 35 to 40%. Yay, shout out to Staten Island for 50%. But it was only four women. <laughs> that they so two of them knew about it and two of them didn't. And then when you look at overall PrEP use in women of color in the past six months, it's a very low 1%. So again, 
we're probably not reaching people that could benefit from PrEP in the community. PrEP is changing HIV on a community or population level. That's dramatic. The first data we have is from, uh, what did Paul call San Francisco before, edgy, gritty? Gritty San Francisco. Um, so Kaiser Permanente is one of the big insurance groups. It's big on the West Coast. They take care of over 170,000 San Franciscans, and they took a look at PrEP use from 2012 to 2015. They had over 1,000 referrals, over 800 people evaluated, and then 657 people started PrEP. And as you might guess, almost all were MSM, the mean age in their 30s. They looked after 12 months, 50% of this group had been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection, but zero acquired HIV in this healthcare system. So this, this was the first more population-based use of PrEP affecting HIV in a community. We turn now to Paris. So there's a study called Prevenir, which is ongoing. It's an open-label prospective cohort study of the use of PrEP in the Paris region. And uh, this was presented um, uh, at the IS meeting in last summer in 2018. Their goal was to demonstrate 15% or higher decrease in HIV among MSM living in Paris. So it has a global uh, charge to it. They'd planned to enroll 3,000 people um, that would be 85% MSM with inconsistent condom use, and then they could choose between using TDF-FTC on a daily basis or the on-demand strategy that you've heard about before, really piloted by the French. And they followed them up every three months. So they uh, ended up enrolling 1,600 results. They were encouraged to present preliminary results at the IS meeting last summer. 99% um, were actually MSM, 85% white, and over half had taken prior PrEP. And I won't go through all of this, but to say that people got to choose between taking PrEP daily or on demand, and people could actually switch back and forth every three months to go to the other strategy. Um, they were correctly using PrEP in over 95% of cases, and no one discontinued PrEP because of drug side effects. So how did this do on this population basis? When they looked both at the daily and on-demand groups, the number of new HIV infections as reported in this interim analysis was zero, none. Now you can imagine people ran up to the mic and said, well, what about STIs and what about the population? You had this goal of reducing the population incidence by 15%, and the response was, we haven't looked yet, so stay tuned. So there's a suggestion here that PrEP is affecting HIV on a population basis. And then we turn to Australia. So this is the first study that actually shows a very solid effect. Um, this is in New South Wales, one of the states of Australia, uh, and that's where Sydney is located. So they had an expanded PrEP implementation project in New South Wales. Their goal was to recruit 3,700 MSM at high risk in New South Wales um, through most of 2016 in 20 different clinics 
and then follow them to see if PrEP was impacting new HIV infections. They recruited almost 500 MSM per month in this study. Um, most came back for follow-up tests. There were only two new HIV seroconversions, but both of them were off PrEP at the time. And this is the most important result. They saw a 25% decrease in province, I guess. What do they call them in Australia? Is it province or state? State, state thank you. Thank you from our Australian person in the audience. So 25% decrease in the number of new infections in all of New South Wales by this PrEP initiative. And they, uh, this is now published and recruitment continues. One of the sub-analyses here showed that men who lived in the city of Sydney had the greatest decreases and less so when you got to the, to the outer suburbs and rural areas of the state. So this is the first population data to say that we could move this and change this epidemic with the use of PrEP. What about new PrEP agents? Well, you've already heard we have data on TAF. Raj reviewed, us for, reviewed that for us earlier this morning. Um, both Maraviroc and Ropivirine long-acting were studied in phase two, but will not be progressing to phase three. Maraviroc because it's an oral drug, and Ropivirine because some concerns of using it led to resistance in at least one person. Cabotegravir is being studied. That's the injectable PrEP. I'll say more about that in a minute. And as you heard a bit this morning, monoclonal antibodies are a newer strategy that's being explored. And a big study is called the AMP study, which was for MSM in the Americas and uh, young women in sub-Saharan Africa are fully enrolled uh, with one of the monoclonal antibodies that Magnum reviewed this morning and will wait those results with interest. So here's the DISCOVER study. Again, that Raj reviewed this morning, TDF versus TAF for PrEP, non-inferiority design, MSM, and some transgender women, actually 74, um, and it was daily oral TDF versus TAF, 22 overall infections, five of which were thought to have been acute HIV infection, which was not picked up. Um, 15 had inadequate drug levels. And as he showed you, seven infections in the TAF group versus 15 um, in the uh, TDF group, and that meets the criteria for non-inferiority. Now, the question about non-inferiority was, is it because TAF is just as good as TDF, or is it because this was a low-risk population and just did not see a lot of HIV? That's an open question, but 57% of the people on this study had an STI during the study. So that seems to suggest that this was a high-risk group. There were improved bone and renal markers with TAF. So now that you know that, so dramatic, right? <laughs> hey, what happened? There's a question there. Yeah, okay, good. So with these new data that you just saw, they're about a week old, how will you most commonly prescribe HIV PrEP going forward? And it's the same choices as the slide earlier in the talk.
150, that's pretty good. Okay, so two-thirds of you are saying FDA approved it that way, I'm gonna continue to prescribe it that way. But interestingly, 23% of you are now considering switching to TAF based on that very early data. And again, I would caution this 4% and say we know nothing about using TAF on demand right now. So I probably wouldn't make that jump. And one other caution, women need to take it every day for sure, and we have no TAF data in women right now. So TDF-FTC certainly is the more conservative choice. Um, this is the study of injectable cabotegravir. It's not really that color. And uh, <laughs> this is, there are two parallel studies. Uh, one's called 083, that's here in the States. Um, and across uh, several countries, actually, across the world. This is for adult MSM and transgender women, and it randomizes them between oral TDF-FTC, so standard of care, versus this new injectable integrase inhibitor that you've heard about all day, and it's injected every other month. This is a double-blind study, so everyone's taking pills and everyone's getting injections, um, so everybody gets active TAF. Uh, I'm sorry, active PrEP. There's a parallel study called 084, which is being done in Sub-Saharan Africa for women, and it's looking at the same comparison. I won't go through the details other to say that it's a fully powered study to show non-inferiority, and there's over, wait for it, 3,500 people have already been enrolled, and uh, the sites in New York enrolled very well. So we will have an answer to this eventually. The primary outcome, as you would guess, is new HIV infections. So PrEP, pros and cons. Pros, we've got efficacy. It's recommended by government agencies. It can be highly effective, over 90%. Generally well tolerated, drug resistance is rare, and we're actually seeing an effect on populations to decrease HIV. What are the potential cons? Uh, the data are relatively short term, we have to acknowledge that. Uh, daily adherence is required unless you use on demand. Side effects can be an issue for some people. Drug resistance remains a theoretical issue. Uh, and there is risk compensation going on out there leading to decreased condoms and increased sexually transmitted infections. We just need to be aware of that and test for it. And then there's cost and logistics. Again, we're lucky to be uh, here in New York where people can get it and get access to it readily. So let me bring up my panel, please because we're gonna do some cases, and so break out the cell phones again. So Jerry, Raj, Sharon, Mike, and Magda. And you can sit wherever you like, actually. All right, everybody ready? Good. Okay, so the first case is FC. He's a 34-year-old gay man. He's HIV negative. His 10-year partner is HIV positive on ART and has a viral load less than 20 consistently at every visit. The partner, FC himself, is requesting HIV prep of you. He has a normal physical exam, his creatinine is 0.8, and a negative UA. And the question is, What's the question? <laughs> Let's all think what the question might be. Uh, 
Okay. So what do you recommend for this particular guide? Take more history, no prep, daily TDF FTC, on demand TDF FTC, daily TAF FTC, or on demand TAF FTC. Go ahead and vote. Is it a coincidence that the song was Great Balls of Fire? <laughs> Jerry, you be careful over there. I'm gonna get into trouble. All right, interesting. So 30% said take more history and half said daily TDFFTC. Those were the most popular choices. Panel, right. Yeah, Raj. I think take more history is key. When people come to me asking for prep, it's usually there's something in the back of their mind. Maybe they have another partner. Maybe there's, you know, they're not monogamous. I think I would counsel the person that if they're monogamous, the, if the uh, partner is positive and is uh, undetectable, we've already heard that they're uninfectious. But I never refuse prep if people are persistent in asking because I, I see that as a signal that they're, there's something that yeah. they feel they're at risk for. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would also sort of act how, ask how long the partner has been undetectable for, because I wonder if there's just sort of a, you know, just super recent or not, because that may make a difference too. But so he's been undetectable for years, almost the whole That's 10 years they've been together. Anything to add, anybody? Mike? So I'm thinking that, yeah, more history, yeah, that's always an answer that you can't go wrong with. But um, at the end of the day, the, I just want to make sure that, that he understands the U equals U. And if he does, I'll go over that and say, okay, now you tell me, knowing what you know, your partner's been undetectable, do you still want PrEP? And if he says yes, end of discussion, he gets PrEP. Because what he's communicating is, yeah, yeah, I get that, but there's some stuff I don't want to talk to you about. And I go, okay, fine. <laughs> so there we go. And everybody remembers to not interview the couple together when you're talking about this. <laughs> Yeah. There, that's a helpful hint. <laughs> okay, so we take I had one, history. I just, just oh, had sorry. one comment. Sarah. Remember, this is true for adolescents as well. So when you have an adolescent in the room, please kick the parent out and talk to them without the parent being in the room. It's very hard sometimes because the parent thinks they should hear everything the kid is saying, and we are very aggressive about putting the parents out of the room to talk to our adolescents. Thank you for that. Okay, so you take further history and you find out the couple is monogamous and have not used condoms in years. So now what do you recommend with that additional history? Same choices. I bought this album when I was 14. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's right. about right. Okay, so big shift. About half the group says no prep, and half or 44% said yeah, use TDFFTC. Panel? That's a big, big divide here in the room. Jerry? I think I take some more history. Uh. <laughs> That wasn't a choice, but okay. I know that. Uh, yeah, what else are you going to elicit here? Well, I'd like to know a little bit more about um, were they, how was that history taken? Were they, were they both, as you said, were they in the room together? I tried to speak with the um, 
with, with the partner who's uninfected, again, about what he understands. Um, and I, I think I would say that if, in fact, he understands it, he's well, um, he actually is indeed monogamous. You don't have to beat him over the head. I mean, if he says he is, um, if he's planning on having some additional relationships and is currently monogamous, I would consider actually putting him on PrEP. But if not, I think it would be acceptable to be no PrEP and have him come back if, in fact, he is going to be at risk in the future. Mike? Jerry, you've got 12 minutes for your visit, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, I just covered the entire <laughs> yeah, thing. No, I'm, I'm, teas I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. I think this might be a good, uh, assuming the thing I said before, I think on-demand prep might be a really good option for this guy. It depends on how much he's, you know, straying. But um, that way he's in control, and that sounds like it might be a winner. So if I interpret the audience here, half of you are taking him at face value. <laughs> they are monogamous. His partner's undetectable. You equals you. The other half of you are thinking, because he asked about prep, maybe he's thinking about something. And we want to be safe. Did I get that right? OK. So we're all aware now that the U equals U is, is not only a mantra, but has data behind it. This was the original partner study uh, where they looked at over 1,100 zero different couples, meaning one's positive, one's negative, from 14 European countries. The initial partner study, about two-thirds were heterosexual, 38% homosexual, 58,000 condomless sex acts, and then if you look at the point estimate, shown for you here, there were no linked infections, so the point estimate was zero. And they looked at every particular kind of sex act, and the point estimate continued to be zero. The partners two study came after this, they increased the power to look at MSM in particular, added literally thousands and thousands of additional zero different couples, thousands and tens of thousands of sex acts, and came up with zero again. So the confidence interval around that zero for MSM got much smaller. And then a completely different group called the Opposites Attract study. Uh, this was over 340 zero discordant MSM couples in three countries, Australia, Brazil, and Thailand, followed them again over time to see one positive, one negative, not using condoms, no new linked infection. So these data have really been taken to say that in this setting, U equals U. And so does U equals U. The CDC has endorsed this. People who take ART daily as prescribed and achieve and maintain an undetectable viral load have effectively, note the use of the words of effectively, no risk of transmitting to HIV negative people. So that's pretty powerful statements. And then the NIAID also came in, so the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, people living with HIV whose virus is suppressed completely, durably, will not sexually transmit the virus to an HIV negative partner. None other than Tony Fauci said that. <laughs> he was chief resident at, at Cornell, actually. All right, last slide on this case. Routine rectal chlamydia NAT test is positive <laughs> on FC. 
Besides STD treatment, what do you recommend? Start prep, he's having unsafe sex. Start prep, his partner is having unsafe sex. Start prep and consider couples counseling or no prep. Okay. Okay, so most everyone in the room wants to start prep. It doesn't matter who is having the unsafe sex, so anyway. Can you choose two? Yes, you could. Those two? I'm kidding. Yeah, you could if you wanted. Any other comments from the panel? So the point is ha having a positive test. Years ago when we gave this question, many people were saying, oh, he's having unsafe sex, no prep. <laughs> no, that's the point. That's why you want to use prep here. All right. No, I asked because of the counseling issue, that is starting prep and having counseling is what you probably want to do, not just start prep. Okay. Good enough. All right. New case. RP, 47-year-old woman. She's HIV negative. No prior history of kidney disease. She has an HIV positive male partner um, who's not currently taking ART. She requests prep. Physical exams normal, creatinine's uh, 1.0, and urinalysis is negative. So what do you recommend? Same choices, except for the last one. Continue condoms, no prep. This is Elvis. Burning love. Okay, 95% said TDFFTC. Panel, any uh, comments on this? No Just, brainer? No, yeah, I think the on-demand TDFFTC would be sort of fraught with complications for women. We just don't have, we just don't have the data for that. And um, TAF FTC, I think you, um, we discussed this morning, they're really the data that we have so far is for, they're not, they don't exist yet for cisgendered women from this cover study, unfortunately. And we can't extrapolate because of the PK right. in the female right. genital tract, we just don't know. Okay, so then she did what you recommended, how about that? She pr prescribed TDF-FTC daily, her routine follow-up, HIV's neg, creatinine 1.2, she was 1.0 before, calculated creatinine clearance 56 cc's per minute, UA neg, urine culture negative. What do you do? Continue, change to every other day TDF-FTC, change to on-demand, change to TAF, or discontinue PrEP? Songs. Anyone know what the theme of? It's about fire, right? Okay, so three quarters said continue. Couple are doing other things, including daily TAF FTC. Panel? 
Anyone disagree with what the majority said? Magda. We were just, Sharon and I were talking about the one choice that is missing is how about treating the partner? Because then, right, that would be um, ideal. It, it's so a that real he could case. He was resistant, he was resistant yeah. to taking ART. Yeah. You know, this is one of those where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. The fact that her creatinine went up in such a short time is incredibly, incredibly worrisome. And I would certainly look if there are other reasons for her creatinine going up. I would definitely do the TDF and look in the reasons for the creatinine, but if her creatinine continues to go up, are you really gonna keep her on the TDF oh, or are you gonna- hold that thought. <laughs> okay. One month later. Yeah, not good. She feels dehydrated, she's taking NSAIDs, her creatinine's 1.4, creatinine clearance is now 45, blood pressure's normal, urinalysis normal, and renal ultrasound is negative. Sharon, you were a plant. <laughs> now what do you do with her? Same choices. Okay, so a third are saying discontinue. A quarter want to continue. Wow, we're all over the map here. A quarter say change to TAP FTC. Panel, what, what are you going to do here? Sharon, jump in. So, you know, I, I think that discontinue prep is a horrible choice, especially if they're not using condoms and he's, the partner is not willing to be treated. It's sort of waiting for the accident to happen. You know, I think continuing the TDF is fraught with complications. We don't have a handle on exactly why her creatinine function is getting so poor so rapidly. So I really think you need to step back, worry about the NSAIDs, see what else is going on with her before you continue that. You know, in the meantime, while you're working her up, I might have said you have to use condoms for the next two weeks until we figure this out. So but you I, would discontinue and reinforce condoms and do a further renal I think workup. only for a very short time, because I think you have to get to the bottom quickly of her creatinine. It's pretty much almost a doubling in such a short time. That's, that's really, really worrisome. So she went 1.0, 1 1.2, 1 1.4. 1 Mike? I agree with that for the short term. Longer term, I think this is where we find ourselves a lot of times where we're in a data-free zone and we have to kind of use our um, sort of extrapolation, understanding we may make a mistake, but I think it's clear she stayed on TDF, FTC daily, she's going to end up in trouble is my first guess. So I would probably go then to TAF, FTC, despite the knowledge that it may not be getting to the site, but I think I'd, we're, we're risking our kidneys. And once they go south, they don't usually come back. And um, so I think in that setting, uh, it, that would be an option if condom use isn't regular, or I guess she could get her partner treated or find another partner. I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. No, you don't put that so, on your evaluation. I'm not, <laughs> oh, oh, I, I wasn't kidding, okay. I no. didn't put up there, dump the guy. <laughs> Did I, did, did I see that she was taking NSAIDs? She was. Yeah, she was taking so NSAIDs for some knee pain. So I would look into that, see how bad the knee pain is, think of any alternatives to that. Also, she, was de he, she had become dehydrated. She felt dehydrated the day the labs were drawn. So was it a hot day or some reason why she was dehydrated and needs to keep? So those things could help, possibly, that is, uh, eliminate another drug that might injure her kidneys and keep her from getting dehydrated. 
But um, so I would think about that as other things that might help. But I think I would also continue the daily. I'd continue it at a lower dose. Continue at a lower dose. I mean every other day. At the every other day. Anything to add, anybody? All right. This is a real case, by the way. So I, this was before the TAF data was available. Changed her to every other day. TDF-FTC repeated it, and her creatinine was 1.0. So we hydrated her, we took off the NSAIDs, and I crossed my fingers. Uh, serum phosphate normal, UA negative, and then when all that came back, we changed her back to TDF-FTC on a daily basis. So happy ending. And four months later, all the labs were repeated. So she did okay. Okay, last case. 27-year-old gay man, baseline HIV antigen antibody test is neg, starts PrEP, daily TDF-FTC, reports excellent adherence, intermittently uses condoms. Week four and week 12, his HIV antigen antibody test is negative. Week 24, his, week, his HIV antigen antibody test is now positive. The immunoblot for HIV-1 and HIV-2 is negative, and an HIV RNA is less than 20 copies per mil. Got all that? What's your interpretation? He's not infected. This is a false positive antigen antibody test. He is infected. This is a false negative immunoblot test. He is infected, PrEP has decreased the HIV RNA level, or I need more information. Cornell guys know this case? Okay. 50% of you chose the safe answer, <laughs> which is that you need more information. 30% say a false positive, 17% PrEP lowered the viral load level. Panel. Mike. Well, I need more information, sorry. Um, because uh, One thing I'd want to think about, my instinct is telling me that this is a false positive immuno, uh, or antigen antibody test. So that's my first thought. but. I want to sort of confirm. I guess there's a lot of ways to go forward. What I might do is stop the prep and wait four weeks and see what happens. And I'm not sure what you did, but that would be, then we might get the declaration, use condoms during that time period and see what happens. That's just a thought. Raj. Yeah. I, I'm with Mike. I would, um, I, I might, I'd probably just repeat everything just to make sure it's accurate. And then I might do an HIV DNA if he was infected, then that might be positive. If it's mm -hmm. negative, that adds to your comfort that this might be a false, false yeah. positive antigen antibody if the DNA was negative. But what Mike said makes sense too. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree. Just to sort of add that we, we see sort of, we can see interesting, so to speak, quote unquote, HIV, the antigen, antigen antibody test results and people on on PrEP, and actually I think there are some data accumulating that sort of when you're looking at the signal to cutoff ratio, um, they're a little bit elevated in individuals who are taking PrEP. Maybe it is because of kind of repeated antigen sort of um, exposure, et cetera. 
And then lastly, and then what also has been noted in the, I think it was in the partner PrEP studies and another, you can have a delayed evolution of kind of the antibody response in individuals on PrEP. So maybe that immunoblot is just not positive yet. So I think the DNA would be helpful. But Matt, would you put him on, I agree with you stopping uh, PrEP. Would you put him, would you be worried enough to like put him on PEP or, or put him on treatment or just stop everything? Put him on, put him on, on three, three drugs. drugs. Well, I mean, if I thought he was infected, I'd yeah. switch him over to three drugs mm -hmm. now because right. I don't want to run the risk of resistance. He, he's not there yet, but he mm -hmm. could well go. So if I was convinced he really was infected, the DNA right. test I thought about, I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'd do if it was negative. If it, I'm not sure if I'd expect it to be positive. It ought to be, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it just needs to declare itself, so I don't really have a great answer here personally. And of course, putting him on a third drug for treatment yeah. then you're commits him. Yeah, then you're, he's there for life. Yeah. Then but, you're, you're, but you're waiting. But could right. you treat him for 30 years and he's really not yeah. infected? That would. But be his immuno, his um, HIV antibody test would declare itself, right, at mm -hmm. some point. Yeah. Okay, so hold those thoughts. Anyway, okay. so it's what did we do? Well, everyone remembers the the uh, schema for this, so we do do the. Uh, HIV antigen antibody combo. If it's negative, you can tell the person they are HIV negative. If it's positive, you need a confirmatory test. It's where the immunoassay comes in and distinguishes one and two. This is where our patient fell. So it's HIV one and two negative, and then you do the NAT testing. And what the algorithm says, if they're negative, then they're negative. If they're positive, they have acute HIV. But we have a complicating factor here, right? And that is he's on two active antiretrovirals. How many people in the audience have seen a case like this? So it's not uncommon. Okay, and we remember which tests become positive first, right, within uh, 10 to 14 days, the HIV RNA, and then the rapid gen with the P24 antigen, and only three weeks later do you get the antibodies turning positive. We're all aware of that. So we did what Raj suggested and repeat everything, and it's the same. So his antigen antibody test a week later is positive, the immunoblot remains negative, and then the viral load is still less than 20. Now what? <laughs> so the panel began to bump us a little bit. So you have two sets of negative tests. Continue prep and retest, add a PI to his prep and retest, add an integrase to his prep and retest, or stop prep and retest. More fire. It's the Pointer Sisters. And they're here for you this afternoon. Okay, so 70 plus percent say stop prep and retest, but other people are considering other approaches, including just following him on prep and retesting or giving him a three drug regimen as suggested and watching for the development of antibody. Um, so this is a conundrum in our field right now, and uh, this is a recent article from OFID which goes through exactly this thinking. What do you do if you have what you think is a false positive in someone on prep? And they say, here are the strategies. You could continue prep, um, and you're obviously decreasing their rate of HIV infection, but if they are infected, you would select out mutations. So that would probably be a negative. 
you could start full therapy, adding a third drug to the PrEP, um, and that would prevent drug resistance and maybe would decrease seeding of reservoirs if they truly are infected. But if they're not infected, they have now unnecessary drug exposure, it may complicate the diagnosis, and of course there's insurance issues because the person is HIV antibody negative and you're prescribing HIV drugs. And then what many people chose was to discontinue PrEP. This may fa facilitate the diagnosis more quickly, but if they aren't infected, it could also increase their risk of HIV infection. So you have to counsel, obviously, to use condoms. And of course, what we've had to tell the patient is you have a preliminary positive test which has not been confirmed. So it's a pretty anxiety-producing state. So what did we do? Well, we stopped PrEP, and then the repeat testing, the antigen-antibody test, was negative. We repeated it with a different kind, made by a different uh, manufacturer of the antigen-antibody test. That, too, was negative. The immunoblot remained negative. The HIV RNA was less than 20 copies, and we did end up sending the HIV DNA test, which was negative. So this was a false positive antigen antibody test. Put us all through the ringer, for sure. And that's the end of the cases, thanks to the panel. So this is a hot topic, um, and clearly wonderful. Everyone seems to be involved in it, and uh, it isn't always that we have the opportunity to prevent rather than treat, so this is really great. So first question, do you usually check HIV viral load prior to starting PrEP? So if everybody heard the question, when you're assessing someone for PrEP the first time, do you need to send a viral load level? Uh, what you're trying to do, of course, is to rule out that they're in the middle of acute infection, so definitely take a careful history of what's going on and assess for signs and symptoms. If you have any question at all that this could be acute HIV, I would send it and hold PrEP until you have it back. You really don't want to start two drugs in someone who has acute HIV because you will have the risk of selecting out resistance. So. History, what have they been doing, when did they last have risky behavior, and assess for signs and symptoms. And send the, send the viral load test if, if you have any questions. What is the frequency of on-demand PrEP use? The frequency. What is meant by that? Okay, so on-demand is a strategy that was piloted in the Ypergay study, which was done in Paris and Canada. And as opposed to taking TDF, FTC every day, what the strategy was, was to take one, two doses, right, of, of the TDF FTC between two and 12 hours before sex, then have sex, then within 24 hours take one pill and within 48 hours take another pill. So it's four altogether kind of stretched out over three days, but it is on demand, it's called that because it is in relation to the sexual activity. When they went back and looked at that study, a fair number of people were still taking it every day because of the frequency of sex, but there was a group of people who had less frequent sex, and so that saved doses. I think the average number of doses taken per month was 15 rather than 30. 
Here's another judgment question. Um, prep on demand, is that suitable for someone having only one encounter a month? The studies have used it when there were 10 to 15 encounters a month. So again, getting at the Ypergay study, overall it was quite a sexually active right. group of people, but they did do a sub-analysis, which they reviewed at the IAS meeting for less frequent dosing of PrEP, like as few as once a week uh, or less, and that group benefited too. So it does work even within frequent use. So we all appreciate that young men of color, MSM, are um, at greatest risk and are uh, least frequently using PrEP. So what, what strategies are being used now to actually try to address PrEP use in that population? Yeah, um, a big <coughs> problem that we're all aware of is that young men in general don't access healthcare. Um, and so how do you find young men who are at risk of HIV, particularly in communities of color? And again, my colleagues at the city and state department of health have done a lot of thinking about this. I think uh, the whole initiative to change our STD clinics into sexual health clinics has been a real positive. Yeah. To identify anyone who has a sexually transmitted infection and tell them about PrEP um, is a really good strategy to try to do that. And then I think just the word in the community, you know, PrEP, when it first came out, was sort of interesting because no one was sort of, I'll say, pushing or marketing or advertising it. The company that makes it wasn't doing it. Uh, physicians, that's not what we do. We don't promote or advertise things. Public health departments didn't, weren't doing this either. Um, our city and state departments of health came up with this idea that they would market it right. like the drug companies do, but hire their own people to get out there and tell people about the benefits of PrEP. I think that was a brilliant idea. Absolutely. No, I've always thought with all due respect that departments of health, health messages are boring and um, it's advertising agencies who know how to get people to do things that they don't want to do or pay for when they wind up doing it. Think about all what we see on television all day so that the select um, psychologically sort of theoretically based marketing strategies are very, very important, and we don't adequately use them. So anyone who rides the New York subways knows that they have taken that to, right. say, to heart and done sexy posters that, that make you want to find out more about PrEP. Right. Okay. Um, there were some questions about the age for um, young boys and young girls for starting PrEP and whether there are requirements and... Uh, and also, are there any particular issues in terms of their use? Sharon, you want to help me out with that one? Yay. Sure, the question was, what do we do about the under 18-year-olds? So the first is you obviously have to bring them into your clinics and talk to them without their parents. The second is you are certainly allowed and uh, can give them prep for boys and girls. For their 35 kilos and over, which really is a pretty small kid, you can give PrEP to. For the girls, we obviously had this whole issue, take it daily, don't take it. What are the rules? But for males under age 18 that are over 35 kilos, write it. It will be covered. It's not an issue. The real problem comes in if the kid is under the parent's insurance and the parent doesn't know the kid is getting PrEP and you write it, they're going to see it. 
Most of our sites do have social workers that will help them get ADAPT or something like that to help cover the PrEP for the adolescent. So the answer is you should write it, you can write it. There are ways around getting the parent to see it's on their insurance and stuff, but it all falls on you to actually follow through with those. Thank you for that. Let, let me correct one thing I said about on-demand. It's between two and 24 hours before sex. Right, Charlie? Two and 24. What about after sex? It's 24 hours after and then 48 hours after. Okay. Um, I said two to 12, it's two to 24. So is there any issues related to hormonal um, therapies that trans um, men to women or women to men actually have of concern in terms of taking uh, preps? There, there were a couple of reports of a formal look at the PK and it was, PrEP was felt to not interfere with uh, feminizing hormones. I, I don't think it's been studied extensively, but there was some pilot data. Okay. And just to say, transgender women are a big focus that we should be paying attention yeah. to. That this I is a good. group that has among the highest risk of HIV infection and would really benefit from PrEP as well. And many of you take care of transgender women who are in that boat. Right. If half levels of rectum are so low, why is it effective in MSM? It's a great question that we do not know the answer to. <laughs> so one important part about that was, oh, the question was, I showed you a, a slide with TAF, uh, the parent drug, the tenofovir diphosphate levels associated with TAF were low-ish compared with the TDF levels. And the question was, why did TAF work in the DISCOVER study if the levels of tenofovir and rectal tissue with TAF are lower? And the answer is we don't know. Um, and the corollary to that is we don't actually know where the tenofovir has to be to, uh, to effectively abort the infection. Is it in the lumen, um, either the uh, rectum or the vagina, or is it in the regional tissues? Is it in the regional lymph nodes? We don't honestly know that. Some of the UU data <clears throat> shows non-detectable is below 200 rather than below 20. So, um, but also effective at that level. So is 20 the right cutoff or should it be a little more liberal? Well, we know from older data from uh, studies that were done in Africa, published uh, um, in New England Journal in 2000, the uh, Rakai cohort in Uganda, that they looked at people not on ART and their risk of transmission, and the cutoff in that study was 1,500 copies per mil. So they saw zero transmissions if someone's viral load was less than 1,500. Um, so many people go with that number. Obviously, the lower the better. The lower the better, right. Um, I think that there are still many questions, but I think we've exhausted you at this point. <laughs> Do I show it? And no, I think, um, but it's been really extraordinary, and I think um, really everyone is a